Hi, this is Shauna. Before we get to today's guest, I want to take a minute to learn more about you, the listener. We've put together a short survey at fueltalent.com slash podcast to gather information on who's listening and to give you a chance to make suggestions and comments about the show. I want What Fuels You to be a great resource for you and your interests, and I hope these interviews give you practical advice along with inspiration for your career and life. Help us continue to serve you better by going to fueltalent.com slash podcast. Thank you so much. Now let's start today's show. Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories, the years, and successes. Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Lisa Gersh. Lisa is an experienced operating executive and public company board member, having been the CEO of multiple companies and currently serving on three public company boards. Most recently, Lisa was the CEO of the fashion brand Alexander Wang. Prior to that, Lisa served as the CEO of Goop, a lifestyle brand founded by Gwyneth Paltrow, and was the president and CEO of Martha Stewart Living Omnimedia. In 2000, Lisa co-founded Oxygen Media with Geraldine Laybourne and served as its president and COO. In 2007, Oxygen was acquired by NBC Universal, and Lisa was made the president of strategic initiatives at NBC. Lisa began her career as a lawyer and has 13 years of experience at law firms, one of which she co-founded. Lisa serves on many company boards, and she's a graduate of the State University of New York Binghamton and holds a law degree from Rutgers Law School. Welcome. So good to see you. Thank you. It's good to see you. This is like such a dream of mine because when I met you, obviously we met at our friend's birthday and we were just kind of shooting the shit and like two women meeting. I had no idea that you were this crazy badass. I just knew you were a good athlete. (laughs) And then we were just talking about like, oh, running companies and women. And suddenly I started asking questions and you were like this onion of like peeling back the layers of every single thing you said. I was like, wait, what? Wait, what? (laughs) You're one person. It seems like you're like, you must have quadruplets somewhere because you're accomplishing too much. Okay. So I'm going to hit you with some rapid fire. Are you ready? Sure. I'm ready. Okay. Golfer. What's your dream golf vacation or destination? Oh, um, I mean, every golfer dreams to play Augusta, but um, I'd say right now my dream golf destination is Cyprus. Oh, nice. Yeah. Are you going to make it happen? I am going to make it happen. You got to pick one and go for it. Love it. Who's your favorite fashion designer? Oh, um, you know, I have a lot. I think, you know, if you look at all the big fashion houses, they're no longer really designed by, you know, the same people who started them. So right now I have been talking to a young woman who's producing out of LA named Tallulah and she makes Bardo Collective, and I think her clothes are extraordinary. And I think she's amazing, and she strives for simplicity and design and the right fabrics and the right colors, and it's something you just always want to put on and always feel good. I'm writing it down. And um, do you have any nicknames? Yes, I do. I have one, Slabby. Slabby? Slabby, S-L-A-B-B-Y, which was given to me by my twin sister, 
I don't know why she started calling me slapper puss for a while and then <laughs> slabby and all of my nieces and nephews call me that. That's hilarious. Okay. Well, I guess maybe you already answered this, but I got, I want to know just like a, a, a vacation, are they all revolved around golf or like, what would your dream vacation be? Best no, definitely, definitely not. Um, Cause I, you know, I feel like it's fun to go play golf in different places, but I want to go do other things. And so Right now I have a, two places that I'm really dying to go to and I want to go to Vietnam and do a bike trip and I want to go to Morocco because I've never been there. Is there a CEO who, when you think of them, I guess that you would most admire or want to kind of spend time with? I mean, someone who I think, I mean, CEOs who I think have done spectacular jobs. I think Bob Iger did an amazing job at Disney and you have to, I know Bob and I think he is amazing, but he did an amazing job at Disney. And not only did he an amazing job at, you know, just building the Disney brand, he built that into a media empire that didn't exist. So he'd be on the top of my list. And are there three words that would um, be used to describe you as a leader? Um, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm not sure I know all of them, but definitely decisive. I mean, everyone likes to think they're collaborative. I like to think that I'm collaborative um, and a bit of a risk taker. Nice. And what about uh, three words that would describe you as a mom? Oh, that's funny. I hope it's uh, caring, empathetic, and loving. Oh, I wouldn't be surprised if those were the words if we had your kids on here. <laughs> I love the way you're describing your relationship with your kids. I was like, that's what I want as my kids get older. It's good. They're fun. So speaking of kids, tell me about you when you were a kid. What was your childhood like? Where were you raised? We, you know, we grew up in the Bronx. Um, I really thought that the ideal day was going to Jones Beach. I mean, that was where we went. We never took one vacation to Lake George when I was a kid. My brother almost drowned. That's all I remember about that vacation. Fell in the pool, oh, didn't have to swim. Um, that's what I remember at Lake Church. But, you know, what I find so interesting now is we were such happy kids. Like, got up in the morning, you packed a picnic bag, and you went to Jones Beach, and nothing was better than that. And you got home early enough so you could play, like, stickball on the street. And that was a great yeah. day. And lots of free time. Kids weren't parented. There was no such thing as parenting. Your parents said you'd come home yeah. at, you know, dinner's at six. And that's what we yeah, did. Yeah, it's so different now. It drives me crazy. And so good with no technology. We just figured it out. I don't even know how we met up with our friends. It was like, you just are where you say yeah. you're going to be. You, you went where you said they called you on the phone and you know you talked. There was that long cord in the kitchen that you tried to <laughs> privately have a conversation on. And when yeah. you were like 13, if you were really lucky, you, would, you and your siblings got to share a phone upstairs. Totally. I mean, that totally. was like a big deal. But you know, my parents... Um, both worked in the garment center until they didn't and then really ran out of money. So we grew up really with pretty much nothing. Um, but I was always that kid who kind of wanted stuff, not, not physical stuff, but just like wanted to make sure that I could do what I wanted to do. So, you know, rather than babysit, which then paid a dollar an hour, it always surprises me what it pays now. Um, I decided to get a job after I read an end in the paper refereeing girls softball because it paid $5 a game. And I refereed softball for girls who were older than I was. And everyone in the little class that you had to go were adults. 
But oh, I was 13 years old and I really wanted to make my own money. Yeah. So my parents really didn't have any. So it's always kind of that kid. Like I was always trying to figure out, I wasn't a schemer, but I was a worker. So like yeah. you, school, you had the hustle. Yeah. When I was in high school, like there were no such thing as side gigs there and you weren't selling things on the internet because it didn't exist. Um, but, you know, I figured out getting a job working at a supermarket because it was union wages was the better job to get than going to work at Friendly's where you didn't get anything. <laughs> where did you learn this stuff? I, I'm not actually sure. Um, but I think I just like figured it out. And so I got a job in the supermarket and that was pretty boring. So I thought this is before scanners that the most fun thing to do would be to memorize the price of every single thing in the store so that I didn't have to look and I could check out food faster. I thought that was the greatest thing in the whole world. And then, you know, when I was 17, oh, I lied about my age and got a job as waitress. And that I did all through the rest of high school and college. And I would come home every summer and I would get two jobs, eight nights a week. And so oh every gosh. other week I would call in sick on that overlap night because I wanted more work. And then I, you know, after two weeks of doing that, you get fired from one. But by then I'd already worked for four weeks. So it worked out really well. You've got a whole um, plan. When you I see um, people that come out of the services industry, whether it's retail or working in a restaurant, are you more drawn to them because they feel more like uh, relatable? They've got that hustle. Or do you not yeah. have like a prescriptive way of looking at people's backgrounds for I completely admire people who are going to do that because I know what they're doing for the most part they're doing it because they're you know it was always really good money and it was kind of that instant gratification you did a good job usually got a really good tip you know also played the game of memorizing and never writing down an order which is to really annoy people I swear to them I promise you I will not get your order wrong I promise you but you know I was talking to my mom the other day it's kind of interesting and she, you know, now that I sit on a lot of boards, which we'll come back to, but she was asking me, how do you get on a board? I said, you know, it's a really interesting thing. You know, sometimes you get a call and I get calls from time to time, but if you want to sit on another board, it's about constantly calling people and reminding them, oh yeah, yeah, of course, you know, I know you, of course, you'd be perfect. Let me think. But it's like the last person they spoke to, right? They're going to call, oh, I just saw so-and-so yeah, and I'm reminded of them. Keeping your and network alive. Yeah. But I said to my mom, it like reminds me of looking for the waitress jobs in the summer. Like I used to go get in the car and just drive from restaurant to restaurant to restaurant. Just, I need a job. I need a job. I need a job. And just keep applying for jobs until I got them. And I said, it's exactly what it reminds me of sometimes. I feel like I'm applying for a waitress job. I can just keep so reminding people. Funny. <laughs> That's so funny. Well, I'm, I'm guessing your twin sister is probably the person who knows you best since you are, you know, just connected in that sister twin way. How would she have described you as like a fifth grader? What were you into and what was your personality like? You know, I was a pretty driven student and um, pretty serious, I would say. Like, my brother and sister were the comedians in the family, and I was, like, the straight person they played off of. Like, I was that person. I had to do my homework. I had to go upstairs after dinner. So I got my homework done. I studied a lot. We had a mutual best friend, though, which was very interesting. Even though we were so completely different, we shared a best friend. And Donna Shulman. And we always did, but we were completely different. My sister and I have always been completely different, but we're best friends. That doesn't Although I'm mad at her right me. now because she hasn't called me back. 
that's a sister thing too. Were you into, I mean, I know you were a college athlete, but the way you described it was almost like not accidental, but it wasn't like you started basketball at second grade or something. Were you into sports in high school? And also in my mind, I think of you as like a music friend. Like, were you into music in high school or when did these things blossom? So, funny. so sports, no, because I was so busy working. Like I always had a job, like even when I had the supermarket job, because sometimes I couldn't get enough hours, I'd go across the street. I worked at Burger King. That was like not a great job. Um, <laughs> the um, hairnet, but yeah. so I, I was always working and my parents owned a store, um, this, a needlepoint and fabric store, which ultimately went bankrupt. But um, I used to work in the store and teach women how to do needlepoint, which sounds so bizarre, but I worked every day after school, like from three to nine. Like my parents would pick me up, they'd go home, and I'd stay at the store and close until nine. Yeah. Wow. So wow. I listen to music all the time, all the time. But I wasn't, but I'm not a big live music person, which is hysterical since I go to a ton of live music because of my husband's job. But yeah, not that yeah. live music. Well, the question I was going to ask you, but it sounds like young, young, young is the answer. Like, when did you realize that you had leadership skills? Because everything you're talking about is um, a form of leadership. Like, even if you're just leading yourself at the time, it's this. Oh, no, 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 no. I was young. I was 10. I, I made dinner for my family because my mom was working. And, you know, I had a brother who was two years older, a twin sister. Nobody, my mother would call me and I'd be like, wait, there are two other kids in this house. I'm pretty sure. But like I made dinner for the family. Like I was always my my parents will tell you I was always in charge. Always. Yeah. Yeah. Just from get go. And you're, you also strike me as somebody who's very confident, not just in the way you carry yourself, but in your ability to make decisions and trust your instincts. How, where did you first have that feeling of like, I got this? Or do you remember? So, so I do kind of, I mean, the, the first part was when my parents' store went bankrupt, um, my brother was 17 and I was 15. So he was about to go to college. And he picked me up one day from school and he said, I have really bad news. We're not going to college because mom and dad don't have any money. And it's, what do you mean we're not going to college? Of course we're going to college. Got to go to college. Um, so I said, well, I'm going to figure this out. So I went to the guidance counselor's office. Again, remember, no internet. So you can't like Google, how do I get financial aid? So I go to the guidance counselor's office and said, I've heard there's this thing called financial aid. Like, how do I do that? So the woman gave me some forms and I applied for my brother. And there was one thing that I kept getting rejected for, but I think I applied so many times they finally gave it to us. Um, but I got my brother full financial aid when I was 15 years old for him to go to college because <laughs> I wanted to go to college. <laughs> I was going. That was definitely happening. So That's incredible. Yeah, was, was your brother my, grateful? <laughs> my brother and I are super close, but then my brother did a bigger favor for me. So I was not a great test taker. I was a great student, but a lousy test taker. My brother was at SUNY Binghamton, and which is a great state school, and I wanted to go to SUNY Binghamton. There was no way I was going to get into SUNY Binghamton with my SATs. So my brother went to the admissions office and got me admitted to SUNY Binghamton, literally. How? How did he do that? He, like, he went and made friends with someone. He's like, you know, kind of told the whole story. I have to have my sister here and blah, blah, blah. And got yeah. it. Was Never that the right me. school for you? I know you studied poli sci and econ. Like how did, who was guiding you through that whole process? It sounds like your mom was kind of a hero, but not necessarily the mom who's going to tell you what to think she about as college. Far as college. Yeah. They didn't go to, my parents didn't go to college. Like it wasn't, 
I mean, they thought it was nice and ultimately yeah. obviously understood it was the right thing for both my brother and I. My sister didn't go. Um, she's had lots of learning issues, which no one knew what they were at the time, although she was definitely the smartest sibling. Um, they, it just was, you know, my parents thought, okay, yeah, you're going to college. Like, and I think was, the first time Binghamton... they saw students, the right school. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have no idea because I didn't even know private schools existed. I went to PS24 and junior high school in 41. I didn't know that there was such a thing as a private school. So would that have been nice? Maybe, but I couldn't afford it. And I was pretty happy. It's cold up there. Yes. We should have gotten school with better weather. Yeah. And how did you know to study poly? Like, what was your interest level as far as poli sci? Did you have a, I want to be this? Like, I know you wanted to be a lawyer, but was that the path? It kind of was. And my brother, who was also went to law school and is a lawyer, um, he was a poli sci major. So seemed like the right thing. I mean, I wasn't going to study French history or anything like it's that. It's so I mean, funny it's, the way we all make these decisions growing so up. Like, care, carelessly, so carelessly, like no idea. Yeah, right. Versus today, and now, it's like, ugh, oh my God, this, this major. Agree. And they're so lucky and they're so thoughtful about it. It's so nice. Or just too much pressure and a whole bunch of bullshit. It depends on how you look at it or which day. Like some days I'm like, this is incredible. Other days I'm like, just go be a kid. Like we got to be kids, yeah. you know? Yeah. Right. We, so got, we got about to your, be kids. We did. We both college athletes, which is, I think- Super fun to talk about, but basketball. Like, when was the first time you held a basketball in your hand? No, I played schoolyard sports, like, like in the schoolyard. Like, we'd go to the park after school, and my brother would let me play basketball with him. He also played football with me in the streets. So I was a very good football player. I could really throw a football. Um, so those two sports. So when I got there, like, I should have gone out for the tennis team. That would have been better. But it was like basketball was the only thing I really had to do. There was an intramural football league which I also played on um as the quarterback um and <laughs> I played I I went out and the coach said to me you know it's two weeks of tryouts if, if you can dribble with your left hand by the end of the second week we might put you on the team and when I went to look at who made the team there were like 10 typed in names and one name written in pencil which was mine yeah, and pencil. kind of water but maybe not <laughs> right we'll see what happens we might be able to yeah maybe it. we'll keep it <laughs> and so what position did you play point guard obviously I was I'm gonna five, say four. I was I gonna mean, say were you point guard but I didn't want to I didn't want to yeah, I mean yeah yeah I mean you never but by know. the way small the forward guard, I will never forget the first time I was like asked to take the ball up the court and I was playing and the two point guards from Oswego were 5'10". I was like, time out, please. Yeah. They are. They're so big. That's <laughs> right. Don't run over me. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, so you me. wanted to study law, you thought. And and um, I guess your brother was going in that path. So again, this whole process. Yeah. Where did you, know, you apply? How did you know how to do it? So... I really thought I wanted to go to business school, but there were two things about business school. One, I never took calculus and I was afraid to take calculus um, because in high school, I stopped taking math in my junior year because I really didn't go to school my senior year because I was working full time. I only went two hours a day. And so there's no time to take another year of math. So I was a little afraid to take the math. And the other thing was, I didn't know anyone in business, like who was going to give me a job. And I kind of knew if in those days, if you went to law school chances are if you graduated, you're going to get a job as a lawyer. Yeah, that security like really, too. Seemed like a really good job. And I was always that kid who was kind of like, this is wrong and, you know, very righteous. And so seemed like a good fit. 
So the, right, the, I... the righteousness, I have it one child, I have three, but one mm -hmm. of my children, it sounds similar to you, but hers is in like an almost like advocacy way, like fighting on behalf of everyone else. Um, I got one of those. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so what was yours about? Like, it's just specifically the law or were you like, I, I want to get into family law or, or. You know, oh, I thought. I actually thought very much that I would be a criminal lawyer. Oh. That's what I thought I was going to do. And so I went with that intention. And then the summer after my first year, I went out to San Francisco with a friend of mine. And, you know, in the law thing, you really only get a good internship your second summer. So I went out there, got a job as a waitress, shocker, and did a uh, internship in the San Francisco uh city jail. And my job was to see if I could help people get released on their own recognizance, meaning without bail. And the way you did that was you, all the people who were arrested the night before, you went in, you interviewed them, you need to find out if there was a bench warrant, they didn't qualify, meaning they failed to appear in court before. They had someone who they could vouch for them, and they have to have lived in the city for a year. Now, again, it's 1981, there are no cell phones, to no internet. So you have to find that person they've told you about. Sometime during the day, so you go into court at two o'clock in the afternoon, they can show up and help get that person out of jail. But I'd say of the 20 people I'd see in the morning, oh, we only got two out. Because either they had a bench farm, we couldn't find anyone who would vouch for them. No one even knew they were in jail. They didn't have a phone number for the person. Oh, that's so I mean, sad. Heartbreaking. Yeah, it was really, and it was that was exactly it was so heartbreaking. So I said, I'm just not sure I could do that. My it's not sustainable. Career. Yeah. It's like, okay, I did that as I like check the box. That was interesting, but yeah, you yeah, would so be the, so depressed. I, I, I thought it was, you know, and the, and the, and then you're leaving them in jail until they go to trial. So, and <sighs> pretrial incarceration is just horrible. So I didn't do that. I did become a litigator, which, but mostly for civil stuff. And then after a couple of years, I decided that litigation meant you just were going to fight all the time and that I should be do transactional work and try to make things happen. So I switched. Interesting. I always wanted to, I mean, I love TV shows where there's, you know, courtroom drama and I would love, I would pay money to yeah. see you litigate. It just, I bet you were good at it. Um, I liked it. I liked it a lot. I liked being a lawyer. I thought it was really intellectually stimulating. Yeah. Um, it was fun. I do as a recruiter, we don't have a practice that specializes in law, but I do get calls from attorneys who are um, unhappy and they're like, <laughs> now what do I do? And oftentimes they are looking to transition to like a general counsel position. Um, it sounds like for you, I remember you telling me it was a little bit more organic than like waking up one morning and saying, I yeah, want to no, go. I wasn't separate. thinking about it. I, you know, I think for lawyers that, you know, if they're litigators, trying to do some corporate investigative work is very helpful because you're then in a role that a lot of corporations need. I mean, the corporate lawyers have an easier time going to be general counsels, but you know, if, you, if someone's at a, a good firm and they've done really good work, you always want someone who's had a four or five years of experience in a firm in-house. I mean, they're invaluable. Yeah. And so what was your story as far as your transition? So um, I had gotten this crazy job at Deborah Boys and Plimpton, which was this big firm. And I couldn't believe, I think I was like their experiment. They hired someone who went to Rutgers. Um, 
I think I might have been the first person I met all these people. Right, because it's like a fancy, yeah. yeah white, and they hire they people out of yeah. heart, white shoes. White shoes, like is it black shoes or white shoes? And that's white shoes. <laughs> white gloves, and they, yeah. And they hire people who've gone to like Harvard, Yale, Stanford, and like really good law schools. And Rutgers is a really good law school, but it's not those schools. I'm pretty sure I was an experiment. Um, and I loved it, but I got a little... I don't know. I, I'm going to wait 10 years before anything's like really great happens. So um, I knew this small boutique litigation firm and I went there as an associate and three months later, the firm broke up and like six lawyers were going one way, six were going the other way. They both asked me to join them. And I said, I wouldn't go with I, whoever makes me a partner. So I want to be <laughs> a partner. The second year associate. <laughs> and so one of them agreed to make me a partner. So I went and I stayed there. I practiced for 11 years. It's a great firm. We did really, my partners were super smart. They'd all been at big firms. They were all great lawyers. Um, that's, I, I loved practicing law. I thought it was fascinating, intellectually stimulating. I didn't have to travel very much um, when I had kids and I didn't want to travel because um, of the kids. And so I loved it. But then I had this client who's in the media industry who persuaded me that I would make a great executive. <laughs> um, and so well, it's not, I went it's not just her. like random. I mean, it's oxygen media, right? That was the transition. Yeah, that's that's the not just like, oh, you should do this corporate thing. Like at this like small, yeah. I mean, no, it's like was... go big or go home. So we were going to start this uh, at first, we were going to start this internet business and we were going to make television shows that kind of went with the internet we were doing. We were really focused on the internet. It was 1998, the internet. Yeah, um, which oh, I, I was right there with you. We're we're yeah, not we're so, too far in age, like we're the yeah. Oh, yeah. So we're really focused on that, and we tried to persuade some networks like MTV and uh, that we should have some time on their network. And they looked at us like we had three eyes. So we so my partner's like, okay, we're going to go start a network, and I'm like, okay, like what did I know? I didn't even know anything about what we're doing in the first place. So she said, well. I have these friends in Los Angeles and they always want to start a network. So we called them and they were big television producers. So they signed on. And then with them, they were like, well, we really need someone who can reach women. Like who's the most important woman in the world in terms of influence? So easy answer. Oprah. Clearly, so, clearly Oprah. Yeah. Clearly I was Oprah. like an Oprah obsessed, like beyond. You have no, when I get asked in these podcasts, like, who do you most want to, it's Oprah for me. I mean, and I've heard mixed reviews about what she's actually like, but I she's am amazing. so blown away by what she's done. She's amazing. So we fly out to Chicago. There's two meetings with her. And a week later, she's in New York. We're going to have a third meeting with her. I've not said a word. I'm so intimidated. I have not said a word, which is very unusual for me. So I haven't said a word. And we're like at dinner. We're trying, we're trying to get ready to like really wrap this up so we can finish the fundraising. We can you know, announce what we're doing and still no one said a word and we're like, they're serving the coffee and the dessert. So I, so I say, so Oprah, we need to know, are you in? And, and deadpan, she just looks at me, she goes, now I know why you're here. <laughs> Literally. You're here. This, a word. You're the closer. <laughs> you're the yeah. closer. You're supposed to get this done. And she was signed up and it, um, it was amazing. It was, a you know, this, this little idea that my friend partner, had Jerry Laybourne to launch this multi-platform brand was on the cover of Forbes magazine before we even launched. It was a lot of hype. 
which was right yeah. around the time of DreamWorks. It was like yeah. the woman. It was a it was a client of mine in New York. Oxygen Media was in the uh, what's it called building that I always get those brownies on the way. Chelsea out. Market. Yeah, in Chelsea Market. We were the first and, yeah. big tenant there. So oh, it, I love Chelsea Market. Yeah, it's amazing. I walked through there the other day. I couldn't believe it. That's the best. Um, so there we were, and we launched on O2, O2, because we were Oxygen. Um, oh, nice. And smart. yeah, I get and, it. And and of course, it was a complete disaster. Um, it's really hard to get it right the first time. But, um, you know, you work at it. And the internet was such a big part of what we're doing. We're trying to, you know, have this thing where, you know, we had a site and then we'd have a show that went with it. We thought women were actually interested in finance content. So we had a site and a show called Kaching, And our sports show is called We Sweat. They're great names, but it was very hard to do. And you didn't know really what was driving the bus. Were you driving with internet content, which then remember 2000, no video. So what are you doing? Um, and no um, high-speed internet access. In fact, when we started, the phone rang when you got onto the internet. Like I dialogue. remember. Like, How really did you remember? like, you know, today it would be like, we beta test with a small, you know, subset. Like, how did you test these ideas? Was it just a group of I'm guessing men and women trying to whiteboard some of this. Yeah, I mean, really test the idea of multi-platform. Like we were convinced, and that was absolutely right, that people are going to access their content from multiple platforms. And that is the case today. If you're connected to a brand, yeah. you expect to get an app, you expect a site, but expect all of it. So that was right. But what led was wrong. And also women are complicated. They're hard to put into buckets. The woman who's sporty might also care about finance and she might also be a mom, but she might be single and she might care more about going out. So trying to bucket women into those kind of pockets, I think are really is really hard. I think mm -hmm. women are so multifaceted and what they want to watch and listen to is very hard to define. And right. so and it depends if they're like looking for the brain candy or if they're looking to learn or if they're looking to get inspired. It's, there's so yeah. many different ways that you ingest and content. And I think timing is everything, right? So we thought it would be really cool to play, have documentaries. Well, documentaries are the it thing now, but then nobody's watching documentary. And, you know, we did launch one show that's actually still on the air, which I find hysterical. It was called Snapped. And oh, was that was the husband one? Women, women yes. who kill their husband, they snapped. I remember you telling me that. That okay, is awesome. It's still on. I, mean, I need to watch it. It's still on. In fact, unfortunately, Oxygen is now like a crime network because women watch a lot of crime. It's really interesting. It's one of the things they do watch and they're like, it's very a very uh, big part of the demographic for crime shows is female. So anyway, we had, that. it was enormous fun. We went through the internet bust and boom and you know all the traumas of having partners who have different visions than you do and trying to get a collective creative thought is always really hard. But we were lucky that we were able to basically, and I think this is an interesting thing, is you start a business with an idea. It's like our idea of convergence between these platforms. And you get there and maybe that idea is not going to work. And in fact, in 2002, the internet kind of went away. And so there we were. I'm like, oh, well, thank God we have a TV network because that could be successful. That we know how to do. So we really focused on building a TV network and not building the internet business for profit, which kind of came back in 05, when broadband became more fully distributed. You needed broadband, it wasn't gonna work without broadband. But we had so many amazing ideas. Like 
we wanted to do what? Women's United Purchasing Power, which ended up being Groupon. And that was, we can get 200 women to buy something and get it cheaper. But you couldn't, there was really no e-commerce in and people weren't giving you their credit cards. Recently. I mean, then we had best one. And this one to this day, my partner is still mad at me about this. We created, Jerry and I used to travel all the time together. And we're like, I have magazines. Remember when you read, you rip a page out of a magazine, of put course. it in your notebook, never to be looked at again. Like a Pinterest. But, yeah, well, we created downloadable software called RIPT, ripped, but nobody downloaded software. So it didn't, but that's what it was. You could take a web page and put it in your little file and have it. Yeah. But timing's everything. Timing so we, is everything. Yeah. So then we, we, and, and this is, that's also interesting. It's like, when you're starting a business. You really have to realize that timing is everything. And you have to realize execution is everything because it was a great vision. It was the wrong time. The television network ultimately was well executed and the website ultimately was, but it needed broadband. And so we ended up selling the business in 2007 to NBC, um, which was great, which was exactly the right timing because after that, A, there was a recession and nothing was getting sold. And then things changed. There were tablets and there was more about mobile and now there's streaming. So if you think about the timing, it was kind of perfect. So that was good. Yeah, it was perfect. And so hopefully that was a good um, outcome. Yeah, it was a good exit, yeah. Um, that's great. And so if you were to be launching that business today, I mean, it seems so much harder and easier in certain ways, but crazy right now, the criticism and attacks on the media industry as a whole, like just trying to get it right, trying to report the truth, trying to, I think, I, yeah, it just seems it, like a really complicated industry right now. And I think also trying you know, there's, you get so much public criticism so easily and so publicly about things that people do. And, you know, I know people have started business and then someone says something and then they're canceled because oh, a it's, group insane of people right just, now. it's insane. Yeah. So I think it's, you know, I think there's a pretty big moat to really starting anything. And I think it's more likely that you're going to be in a you know, a business that's going to be successful is going to be more web 3.0 than it is anything else. I think, I think basic cable and uh, broadcast is essentially over and it's over in five years. I don't think that there'll be linear television. I mean, even my mother has Hulu. So (laughs) we have have everything. And then when someone, you know, of course my list is redonkulous. I have the longest, like what to watch. Cause I always ask people, what are you watching? I love TV sadly. But then you're, they give you some network that you've never heard of it. Well, I better download that one. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. We have so I think everything. It's kind of. Crazy. I think it's also. I think it's it's very hard. You know, th- there are a lot of mechanisms to sell product content, but it's also very hard to get noticed. And um, so I think there's just there's so much out there. Yeah, and what do you it's, think of TikTok? Tough. I mean, I love TikTok because I think it's a great marketing device. Um, and I think it's right now it's the marketing device. I mean, five years ago, it's Facebook, then for a little while, Snap, then and Instagram, Instagram yeah. and they'll come and go. TikTok's a good one though for, it's great for marketing. Yeah. People love it. Yeah. Um, okay. So moving on, um, I always love to kind of figure out about cultures because you've got such incredible companies and given the industry that I'm in, I'm always looking at recruiting and culture and how you draw talent. And you've got some big name P 
people behind you plus you. Um, was it easier, I guess, you know, you transitioned them to work with and for Martha Stewart. And so you're going for these, like, you're going, iconic women, your whole resume. I'm like, oh my God, these are you all people. Know, you, you have to appreciate them. I think that's the first important thing. If you, if you don't, like, just appreciate the genius, um, that's the first step. The second step is to treat them like regular people. I mean, they are regular people. And I think the people who get around them and don't treat them like regular people and don't talk to them openly. There are, you know, look, there aren't a lot of people who say no to Oprah um, when she asks for something. And I think that is always when you're that person who might say no um, or try to change their mind on something. I think that's pretty hard. But, you know, if you're confident enough and so sure enough about what you think, I think that's the right thing. You also have to, you know, I think I'm someone who knows when no is no. And when you know it's no, then you move on and you pick your battles. Yeah. Um, you have to pick your battles because you're not going to win all. And part of part of them being them is them winning the battle all the time. And they have. And and it's worked out. Yeah, so it has. They, but I'm sure they it, appreciate that you're not just a yes person there to kind of like fluff and there's no purpose in having someone like you because you can execute, but you also do have an opinion and you're there for a reason. You know, I think you get, I got some Martha. It, she's amazing. How so, did that job I'm, come to you or you come to so, it? So I ended up staying in NBC for a couple of years. Um, and when I left, I was like, all right, I've worked my whole life. I have a teenage daughter and a 10 year old and I'm going to take some time off. And like my first day out, I get her a call from a recruiter. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm not doing that. I've, you know, she, Martha had already been away and come back. And I knew a bunch of people worked there and I knew that a lot of people came and left. And I was like, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. And my husband was like, you should do this. Like, this is a really interesting opportunity. You're not going to get, there aren't that many public company media CEO jobs in New York and you're not leaving New York. So you go, go meet, meet Martha's one more charming, interesting people you ever meet in your entire life. She's amazing. And so I had a couple of meetings with her. And so I was like, all right, well, I guess I'm not going to take some time off now. Um, and that's how it ended up. But I remember being there and like what the, the offices were. So there was studios and photo studios and five kitchens because, you know, one for savory, yeah. one for sweet, one. And walking through a photo shoot one day and people are rushing around. I'm like, what's going on? And um, they're like, oh, there's purple in the shoot. What do you mean? There's, there's purple plates and Martha hates purple. I'm like, Martha hates purple? <laughs> so I go back to my office right next to Martha's office and say, Martha, do you hate purple? And she's like, I don't hate purple. I'm like, well, everyone in this business thinks, company thinks you hate purple. So that's, you're never going to see purple until you make that announcement. And by the way, you know, this is a lesson when you're the founder or the CEO or a big executive, everything you say, everything you say to, is taken yeah. with the loudest voice. So you just have to be so careful how you say things. And of course, you know, now we have purple. <laughs> and now there's purple. That's so But crazy. you know, I, I, I went through with this idea of, you know, her business had once been super successful. She was all over the place, media, merchandising, and trying to figure out how to put those two things together. Because I've always believed that they belong together, even though, you know, there's a, used to be church and state there is no longer but there used to be and so I went there with that idea and that was a very hard idea to sell to Martha in particular because mm -hmm. the magazine was sacrosanct 
and the product was sacrosanct. And they actually, the media part of the business was on a separate floor from the merchandising part of the business. So it was like, it was, it was hard to do. What was the job and, description though? Like when, when you took the job- I was a CEO. How, right, but like, that's the title. Like what were, what, um, what were the pain points that you were trying to kind of solve for? Was it a turnaround? Like where was the culture as far yeah. as, she just got out of prison. I mean- She's been out a little while, but the, I the think the pain points were the company spent more money than it made. And how do you figure out how to turn that equation around? And that wasn't that hard honestly, because there were lots of, there was lots of low hanging fruit there. There were businesses that were the merchandising business, what was super successful. I mean, she had a great deal with Macy's, a great deal with um, Home Depot. I think it was PetSmart, one of the big pet companies, can't remember now, but she, and the merchandise was amazing. I mean, this, she's the one who invented high design at Kmart. And, you know, the sad part is she had that great relationship with Kmart and that fell apart. And then they kind of put these other ones to the Kmart one. I mean, I remember going to Kmart, like, where's the Martha Stewart product? Everybody wanted it. She was incredible. But, you know, it, it was hard to get the business to focus. So, you know, we'd be on, we'd go on a, Martha liked to go to the store. So we'd go on an advertising meet to an advertising meet like Procter and Gamble. And when we were in Cincinnati, We'd have to go to five Home Depots and three Macy's just to see it. And she, Martha would literally rearrange it if she didn't like the way it looked on the floor. I'm like, this, this is not getting us anywhere. There are too many Macy's and Home Depots for us to rearrange the floor. One time she, there was, <laughs> this is great. There was kind of a, this critical piece about her and Home Depot and her paint product. So we literally got in a cab and went to 23rd Street and mixed paint you know how you make paint it's white yes. and then they pour the color in yeah. and that's what she did and she helped people she's standing there helping people pick up and she loved doing it that she was well it's nice to be her. able to touch the business sometimes like the higher up you go you're like wait i'm, I'm not doing the thing that got me here to begin with so i can understand so why she'd want to she not just touch the to product but touch the customer everything and yeah. she wanted to touch everything about the business was and you know the the company published a lot of recipes we had four magazines when i got there two when I left. Um, and there was a rule, you had to make the recipe five times, it's a very good practice, and that Martha had to taste it. So one day I'm walking around the office with Martha and we're you know, having like one of these walking, talking meetings and come up to Martha, you gotta taste this, we gotta, we gotta publish this recipe. And Martha says, oh, I really don't want to, at least you taste it. So I taste it, I'm like, wow, that's so good. She looks, she looks at the plate, she goes, needs more lemon. She just knew. <laughs> she just knew, she just looked at it. The woman had more taste than I did without even tasting it. It was incredible. It's incredible. Yeah, it sounds like it. And so you obviously worked really well with her. And I did, you know, she, there were things that, you know, she, she liked to control things. And if she wasn't in the meeting, you know, people like that, if they're not involved, they get upset. If they are too involved, they're not really paying attention. They can be distracting. That's the challenge. Yeah, like, they come in as the heavy and you're like, we've been working on this for four months. Like. Yeah, I understand. We that. we did, and she did that. We did an event. I mean, when I got there, we were having some issues with getting advertising. I'm like, this maybe this brand just isn't relevant anymore. And I actually sat at a dinner table with my kids. Daughters were like, Mom, you're nuts. This is the coolest job you've ever had. I'm like, really? This is the coolest job I've ever had? Okay, going with that. So I was like, came up with this idea that we were going to celebrate Martha as 
the founder of lifestyle genre, which she was. 100%. So 100%. So we did a contest in the magazine to pick the 10, you know, great lifestyle entrepreneurs, like really niche, like we had a cheese maker and we ran it in the magazine, we put them on the show and we were going to have this big event in Vanderbilt Station um, in New York City called American Made. And, you know, it really was Martha anointing these life and lifestyle experts. Those people write their own ticket after that. That's pretty sweet. So we have this big, the mayor comes, the head of the SBA comes. It's amazing. The advertisers, we got sponsorship for the event. This is amazing. And at, like every day, Martha would walk in and she'd say to me, she goes, I, I just, I, I'm just a little confused about this. If this is all about me, why are we celebrating other people? It's just like, because that's what like that's, Then that's also like the smartest thing about marketing. Yeah. Like focus so, on others. Yeah. Yeah. She was very happy after that. That's, oh, I'm that sure. And how did the yeah. whole Snoop Dogg thing come to be? I don't know. That was post me, but you know, she yeah. always loved him. He was on her show all the time. You know, that's the thing about her. She's, and this is, I think what makes people like her great. She's so curious. You cannot be her and be that expansive in your knowledge base and what you're good at without being curious. So she's just curious about everything. Yeah. And I'm super curious. I mean, I'm curious. Um, I am actually very curious about if you had to have kind of a few takeaways and we're going to get to Gwyneth, another influencer, of course, but what were some of your key takeaways as far as, oh, I'm going to use that going forward from Oprah or for Martha stylistically? Was it the curiosity? Is it the control? Like, what have you taken from them? And also, what, what do you think they would have taken from you? I think, you know, the things, there's probably a fair book that I, with look, with Oprah, it was really going deep all the time, really understanding her audience, really listening hard. She's a fantastic listener. Um, you know, I think more with Martha is what, I kind of thought she, what I wouldn't do. Um, you know, it's more, sometimes you have to just step back when things aren't working and do a reverse. You know, we did that at Oxygen when the internet really bubble burst. We had 250 people in our, in, on the internet side of our business who we had to fire. And it's like kind of knowing when you have to stop. And I think that's probably the most important thing. And really where I wanted to, get her to was either putting those two businesses together, like the magazine became almost a catalog and we mm. gave up the advertising mm -hmm. or you got rid of most of that part of the business because you couldn't really have them both. So, you know, look, I, I don't would, Martha is otherworldly in terms of taste and um, uh, prescient. She's very prescient. She sees things that other people, I mean, doing what she did with Kmart was incredible. I so, completely agree. And, so I mean, you were there till when? What year did you guys, did you leave there? 2011 to 2014. 2011 to 2013. And then I was going to take time off again. <laughs> and there I was. And then one of my daughters had a birthday and I made t-shirts and they told me to go back to work. Um, yeah, you're <laughs> like, I'm going to be the overachieving mom now. Yeah. Now I'm going to like actually pay attention. Um, no, I don't pay attention, but, um, someone, one of them was involved in a business with Tracy Anderson and they wanted someone to come and run this business. So I got a call 
and about the business. And I'm like, I, I'm not interested. And my kids were all working out. My girls at this point were working out with Tracy Anderson. I was like, no, I'm not interested. My kids were like, mom, Tracy Anderson is like so cool. And then the recruiter said, and her partner's going to Paltrow and she'd like to meet you. What? I'd like to meet Gwyneth Paltrow too, who wouldn't? Um, so I went to the meeting with her and I said, look, I'm really not interested in this job at all, but I'm happy to give you some advice and help you figure out what you need to know and how to move it forward. And I probably know someone who could help you out. Um, and I actually, my stepdaughter ended up taking the job and I ended up like on her board, helping her for a bit. Taking um, the CEO job? No, I, I, my stepdaughter was like the COO. Wow, and I was amazing. like an advisor helping them do that. I did. So in the middle of that, Gwyneth was moving back to the United States. She had a friend of hers, Juliet DeBoveny, had said, you know, Gwyneth, you should turn this into a business. I said to her, I know exactly what this business should be. And, you know, I've always wanted to put content and commerce together. I think it's the only way to do it at this point. And she said, will you come help me do it? I said, sure. So we did that. So how many people were there when you started and what was the business and business model and how did it change over time? Two people were there other than she, and um, there wasn't really a business model. I mean, they were, Gwyneth would make recommendations from time to time and they would get affiliate revenue for that. Um, and I said, no, 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 we're going to sell advertising and we can also sell other people's products. We don't have to do affiliate and we don't even take inventory because people are so at that point, so happy to have Goop like basically recommend their product by selling it, they would give it to us on uh, with concessions. So yeah. that worked out really well. But yeah, then we another, changed. I mean, all, yeah. after time that had changed, but um, the idea of the content and commerce really did work. And I, I do, I get calls about that all the time from people like, how do yeah. you do that? Well, and it still does. I follow Goop and it, it actually kind of bugs me. I think she, obviously she can be polarizing and I listened to her podcast on um that Doc Shepard did with her, where he kind of addressed that. And I, I feel like it's unfair, the criticism that she gets, because she's not trying to target every customer and every audience. It's supposed to be kind of fun and it's supposed to be- kind It's of very targeted. Exciting, it's, but it's yeah. not for everyone. And so people who are like, oh, well, of course we want the Hermes, you know, stationery or whatever it is, um, some sort but of you know crazy what I thing, so but it's funny. Like, that's okay. You know what I find so funny about it? If you look at like, we always got criticized for our gift guides and, and we ultimately ended up making fun of it, but it was like, look at Neiman Marcus's gift guide. They have a plane right, in there exactly. for God's sakes. Like, a plane. Not a plane. Yeah. Um, but it isn't for everyone. I so admire Gwyneth in her ability to be so highly opinionated and knowing she's going to get criticized for that. Yeah, of course. You can't be a person who's obsessed with what people think of you and also she's not. be her. She's really, yeah. no, she's really not. I mean, she's got. Yeah, I'm guessing that she's probably also pretty business savvy and creative combo meal <laughs> because I the business she, is I like think a she legit is now. business. I think she is now, not when we started. I think when we started, she needed me as a CEO because. I, I knew how to raise money. I knew how to do the business plan. Yeah. I knew how to set a business. She didn't know that, but she is so smart and such a quick learner. I mean, I remember my, one of my favorites is we were going to go, was one of our pitches. I think it was an A round pitch. 
And it was like the last pitch and I thought we we're going to get the money. So I'm like going to bring Gwyneth. It's always like, if you bring Gwyneth, you probably get the money, but you don't want to take up all her time doing it. So I was meeting her in, in the Valley. And I said, I need to meet with you before. Let's separate, but I got to prep you for this meeting. I need you to say five things. And she's like, oh, just tell me later. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Written down a piece of paper. And I say, okay, one, two, three, four, five. She said, okay, I got it. And I said, okay, let me hear it. And uh, she was pretty good at it. Um, and she was, she's, she was completely passionate about the business, totally believed in it um, and wanted it to be a serious business. I yeah. think, I think though, what I would say is I think it's really hard to make that transformation because in business, you know, I always say business is a series of problems that need to be solved. That's what it is. And so if you don't look at it that way and you're thinking of it as something else, then you're going to be disappointed all the time. Like that's so interesting. What I find ironic, Lisa, is that you started talking about how earlier in our conversation, you were like, well, I'm going to go to law school. I'm not really like, maybe not go to get an MBA because I just never wanted to do calculus. It seems like all of your jobs involve like balance sheets and P&Ls and fundraising and all the numbers. So here's the craziest thing. If you ask me what the affiliate marketing budget was for oxygen in 2003, I could tell you that number. And I don't know why. I have no idea. If you ask my husband, if I know anything about our, any of our bills, nothing. I don't look at them. He looks at them. If, I, if you did tell me the number, I would remember it. 100%. So like people would come into budget meetings at Oxygen and they say, oh, the year I, you know, presenting next year's budget, here's how we finished last year. Here's what we need this year. And I'd be like, didn't you tell me last year that the budget was going to be 229,000, not 242? Why did you spend 242? Like it was weird, like really weird. But Gwen is like that too. I mean, she has the amazing memory for stuff like that. And she was super engaged and really wanted to work. It. I think what's hard for people like Gwyneth, um, Martha, not so much Oprah because she was not in that role. I think it's hard to be a manager because mm, people want to, yeah. that's the hard transition. It's not the business part about it. It's not the putting the pieces together. What goes with what, what do we need to do? What's next? I think the management is harder. And what part of that do you think was hard? Just like, I can't deal because they expect perfection or they expect efficiencies that other people can't. I think they expect perfection. That's what I'm they, saying. Like yeah, they want they people to be in a way be perfect. That, that they are. Yeah, right. exactly. They expect people to be perfect and people are not perfect. Like, yeah. Or they don't care to be perfect. And I think people disappoint them in that regard. I think it's very hard because they're not, people are not that. And they're not supposed to be that. I used to say to them both, you know, in baseball, if you bat 350, you're in the hall of fame. That means you missed three quarters of the time. And it's, or two thirds of the time, it's not so different in business. Like in my opinion, business, like if you get 70% of the stuff, right? Wow. That's amazing. Cause you can fix the other 30%. Yeah. That I mean, probably makes you a great people manager. Um, do you think that you are a good people manager? I think I'm a very good people manager. I think people like, but you have to be prepared to hear it. Like I hate when people don't just say it straight up. Like I'm just going to say it Yeah. and yeah. what they need to hear. I'm, I'm also pretty nice, but I am going to say it. And I right. think once people know that, they, they know. It's like, and they're probably, they get, you probably, I'm guessing, ex, um, 
I, I'm this way. Like I expect complete accountability and I'm the same way. I'm like, Oh God, I totally dropped the ball on that. I'm so sorry. Yeah. When people try to like make it sound pretty, but it's actually not. It drives me crazy. I'm like, just own it. We all make mistakes. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I would imagine you're good. Yeah. Um, so what do you think, uh, is a, I guess, consistent theme. What was your favorite culture as far? I mean, you, you helped build these cultures, but it comes from the top. So which one was it like, I could replicate this and be super proud? Um, you know, oxygen was an amazing culture. And um, I, I attribute that so much to my partner, Jerry, who had built a lot of companies and you know, she built Nickelodeon. She really cared so much about people. In fact, I think it was really funny. We started Oxygen in 2000, we launched in 2000, and we had a reunion in 2020. And, oh, so fun. And everyone showed up. And I, I thought that was so interesting. That. I can't imagine that at any other company I've ever worked at. Any other company. Well, that everybody was a, a, able to even remember and track people down. And it's, we, there's like a Facebook group. I mean, it's incredible. So that was an amazing culture. We loved it. And it was, um, you know, people plugged along with us when we had to make all those big changes and we were growing and everybody was so proud to be there. That was yeah. really fun. Yeah, that's great. And tell me about Alexander Wang, another, I mean, I told you this when I was talking to you, I was like, I love Alexander Wang. That His clothes he, were great for me. Such a gifted designer. Um, I think that's a hard one because his company is owned by his family. Um, so you have- I like, didn't realize of, that kind of a very difficult mix where you have like the creative director, designer, CEO, um, and a family who's kind of the money, um, not a real board. Um, but, you know, I'm, this is what I always say about that job. So happy I did it because learning about apparel has been super helpful for me in other aspects of things I've done on boards and stuff and supply chain and all that and all the visits I made to Asia really helpful um i love clothes and i don't like the fashion industry it wasn't like i thought okay i love clothes so i'm gonna love the fashion industry i didn't yeah. it's it's a very hard business because it's so much driven by high fashion and you know for the design from the designer's point of view it's all about the runway and you never sell runway most of the clothes right. that walk down a runway never get made Right. Interesting. I remember go, when we were talking about it, you, you were talking about the overlaps of like the things that you've seen weave through the industries that have helped you. Like I can crush this because I see it through a different lens. Yeah. I figured out how making a television show is the same as making a dress. It's the same exact process. Um, all products have like ideation periods. All products have manufacturing periods. All products have distribution and sales periods and figuring out how all those things relate. And one of the things I did when I got to Alexander Wang was change that because, you know, fashion, most, a lot of high fashion brands have four seasons. So they have one season in the showroom, one season in the store, one season being manufactured once. It, it was crazy. Designers can't keep up. Customers don't know the difference. Um, no one understands the difference between fall and pre-fall, resort and spring. I mean, those are names that people don't understand. So when we changed it, I'm like, we're just gonna have summer and winter. And so they, then they said to me, well, you know, what do we, and then I said, we're gonna ship it 12 times a year so that there's newness all the time. And they're like, well, what are we gonna call what we ship in October? I said, October. 
<laughs> like, what are we like? Call it October, then everybody's gonna know what it is. When <laughs> it's supposed to go, <laughs> just keep it simple. Simple is the easiest way to go. And how was um, that received? It's interesting because it was not only did I get Alex to do it, but I partnered with the head of the what is it, the fashion, the fashion group, I forget what it's called. And I got the row in and Rodarte in and um, two other brands who are similar size brands to agree to limp, do their seasons that way so that their fashion shows, and part of it is when's the fashion show going to be? So we moved the fashion show to June instead of mm. September when everybody else is working. So they all did the same thing too. Were you able to get a big audience to come in June? Because people are so used to fashion week. Yes, indeed. People actually are in New York in June. Like, why wouldn't they come? Yeah. You know, it, was, like it wasn't New that York hard. in June. What about you? <laughs> that's like, yeah, that's no, it was coming. people came. I mean, you do it around certain things. The tricky thing are the buyers and when they're going to spend their money. But if they all like made the change and like train the buyers, it'd be fine. And and now wholesale is in, you know, wholesale was, is so changed. There's no more Barneys, barely any wholesale. So yeah, it's, it's, it's sad. Um, yeah, so what was he business. like to work for? I mean, I've read some kind of controversial stuff. I'm guessing it was not while you were there based on the dates. It, it, it wasn't. And I never saw any of that. I, there are people who worked for him. Like he had one woman who worked for him for like seven years. Who was his right hand. Who was really good. All these, a lot of these people always have someone who can interpret them, which I think is important. Mm -hmm. It's like, what would Alex want? And if they're not in the room, they know, um, you know, he's, it, it, I, when I was trying to change, this will explain, I was trying to change the season, seasonality. I was like, well, let's just have it sit in the showroom after it's, because, no, 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 I'll keep changing it. And that's absolutely true. They don't, it's hard to stop and hard to know when it's enough. And, you know, most of the time designers would design like 300 pieces and sample 200 mm. and then make 150 those percentages need to be right in order for a business to be profitable. And it's very hard to control a designer who's so passionate about what they do, but they want to do more. Yeah, I can see that. I can totally see that. Um, I'm curious because it seems to me like you're extra efficient. Um, <laughs> do you have hacks that you can pass on to me or anyone listening for like how to set yourself up, I guess, for a good week, a good day, a good yeah, trip? Yeah, Sunday's key. So Sundays are key. Sunday nights are always have to be a planning night. You have to sit down with your calendar. You have to look at it. You got to put your work out in your calendar or you're not going to do it. Um, and a lot of people don't like to do that because their calendars are public. I'm like, I don't, I don't understand that. Put your work out in your calendar in time that makes sense for you and see it, make sure it fits in. I, I mean, I have some friend who used to go to SoulCycle and it was too close to her office. So she just used body wipes to clean herself off and went to work. I mean, you got to get it in any way you can. Um, yeah. And you know my packing tip because I'm a really good packer. Oh, is I you need, need to. You need to make a list of the days you're going to be gone, and you literally need to write down everything you're going to wear Monday day, Monday night, Tuesday day, Tuesday night, and as few colors as you can bring as possible, so that your shoes always match. Because you're only going to bring one pair of shoes. And what about when you get there? And because I'm a person who doesn't plan my outfits, I just go with my mood and energy at that time. I have like thirty different. But you can't do like, that when you you're. Can't do that. Not right, when you're so traveling. So how do, do that. you, you just have to be a Can't person that's just, I'm going to commit to this outfit. I'm committing. I check the weather. I'm committing. I'm hundred percent committing to this outfit. No, I have a no optionality rule. 
And by the way, if you're going to bring your sneakers to work out, tie them in the outside of your bag because you can't put your smelly sneakers in your bag and all workout clothes can be worn twice. So Lisa, you mentioned um, your mom asking you about board work and how you decide and and what the process is like. Um, What was your first experience like being on a board and what role does a kind of good board member play? Sure. I mean, I, I got, I started on a public company board in 2005, which was an early internet company called The Knot that went public. Um, I remember The Knot. It was great. Um, and it was, that was a much less formal board. We didn't have committee meetings. It was just one, basically one meeting. Um, and it was, so it was relatively small. Um, so it was more like a private company board than a public company board. My first public company board was Hasbro. And I was at that time, I was a public company CEO at Martha Stewart and I had public company board experience. The weird thing about public company boards is a lot of times you're looking for board members that have public company board experience. So how do you get that? Um, They'll oftentimes pick someone who's a sitting CEO or CFO of a large company who maybe participates in the public company board meeting. But it is, it's a, it's a complicated process because if you're not on one, then how do you get on one? And so I always say it's good to start in a company that's private and maybe will go public, which is a good way to do it, um, to get on. But it, you know, sitting on a public company board is very different than running a company because you're not running the company. And you have really two main jobs. One is to make sure that you have a strong and a performing CEO, and then you have a, a good succession plan in case the CEO leaves. And the other is to approve the company strategy. It's really not to hire people. It's really not to develop the strategy, develop marketing plans. You can look at those, you can have opinions about them, but that's not really what you're there to do. And you're also there to approve largely capital allocations of funds. So if the company wants to make a big acquisition or divest something, that's something as a board member, you're gonna have a loud voice in. Um, But at the end of the day, you're sitting on the board not to serve management, but to serve the shareholders. That's who you're there for. And so it's an interesting line because you're working with management, but you're there to protect the shareholders and that's the function. Yeah, I've Um, never really heard it said that way. I like that. You know, I like it because um, you get to, especially on the committee level in, you know, you get to help the company's strategy and let's say it's a compensation committee. And, you know, those are really important issues that come up because you're thinking about how do I retain the best workforce with the right compensation plan? How do I reward the workforce and make sure that those rewards are consistent with the value the shareholders are getting? And these are tricky times because, you know, the equity markets are really down and people could still be really performing. You give them a set of goals, they hit their revenue, they hit their operating margin targets, and yet the shareholders haven't, the share stock has gone down. That's a very complicated equation for people makes yeah. it hard to retain the best ones. Yeah. It's, I, I, again, keep hearing these like analyses through numbers and you've become an expert. I love it. So beyond the numbers part, what I think would these boards um, say about you as far as what you're bringing to the table, your like ninja warrior skills. 
Well, I now I would say that my ninja warrior skills, I know a lot about board processes and what we should do and what we shouldn't do. Um, and, you know, when we look at strategy, um, I know a lot about consumers and marketing and what makes sense. And I think, especially if you've been on the board for a couple of years and you've seen things happen, you know, you know, we, we've gone in that direction. It didn't work. Why are we thinking about going back in that direction? Because we already did that. heard that before. It didn't work. Let's not go do that. You know, we have a new company like um, uh, that maybe has been focused on growth rather than profitability. Your job as a board member is really to say, you know, this market doesn't care as much about growth anymore. We really care about profitability. So that marketing spend that you were going to do, uh, maybe not. Yeah. Interesting. And so I have a last couple of questions because I know that you've spent a great amount of time, which I super appreciate. Um, I'm just curious about legacy for you. Um, legacy as a leader, legacy as a mom, legacy as a member of your communities that you live in. Like, how would you want people to describe you as far as the mark you're leaving? You know, in, in terms of in terms of being a leader, I would want them to describe me as someone who's been you know, has helped them move forward in their career. I, I get calls all the time from people I've worked with previously at all the companies I've worked with for advice and direction on how to move forward. And I hope when they're working with me, they, you know, my goal is for them to all to grow up and be CEOs. So I hope that's happened to a bunch of the people that I've worked with and the businesses I've worked and worked with have made as good a mark as they can make. That's important to me. As a mom, I want my kids be successful and happy and live free and independent lives. And I, I think they're doing that and super happy about that. And, you know, my passion, which we talked about a little bit has always been criminal justice. And the board I sit on is called the Bell Project. And we um, uh, work to uh, help people uh, get out of jail um, before their, before their trials and also to, work on bail reforms, which I think are really important because you know there's some crazy statistic that for every day you stay in jail, even if it's one day, two days, three days, the likelihood you'll commit a crime when you get out grows exponentially in part because you probably lost your job when you were in jail. And if, if I get you out of jail, 50% of people who get bailed out of jail never go to trial. They never, because the prosecutor can't say, hey, why don't you take this plea and then you can go home, which is what most people do when they're accused of misdemeanor and they go home. But if they're not in jail, they don't take the plea. Oh, interesting. And it, it's just fascinating. We have 500,000 people rotating through the system on a daily basis and 10 million people in this country incarcerated, which is more than any other democratic country in the world. Yeah, it's so messed up. It's so overwhelming. Thank you for doing something about it. Like it does feel very overwhelming and and sad and frustrating. Okay, my final question is what fuels you? Like what gets you out of bed in the morning? Oh, just life. I love living. I hate missing a minute. And some days when I'm tired and I want to sleep and I'm like, ah, oh, just so many great things. I can sleep when I'm dead. I, I like to sleep. I try to go to sleep early because I, I don't really believe in that edge. I think you need to sleep or you will be dead. I think yeah. sleep really super important to your health. And so, you know, I want to sleep, but I get up just because I'm so excited. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review 
on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You. Thank you.